So my name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, always really glad to have you guys with us. Uh, I'm starting to get my stomach all ready for Thursday. I got a whole pregame and ritual. It's going to go down next week. Uh, so full disclosure, I, I think confession is always a good uh, way to start off these messages. Uh, I'm a really mediocre swimmer, right? Like my parents put me in a YMCA back in the day for swim classes. I was a guppy and they took me out. I don't know why you guys pulled me out that early. Um, but I'm not the strongest swimmer in the world. Uh, if we're ever at a beach and you're in trouble, I'm going to send my wife in after you. Uh, I'm not running Baywatch style to uh, get my feelings hurt so both of us could drown. Uh, I'm not the, the greatest swimmer. Years ago, uh, I went to Action Park. And if you grew up in the 80s and 90s in New York, New Jersey, you remember Action Park? Yes. Uh, nobody, you didn't just go to Action Park. You survived Action Park. Uh, they had so many lawsuits for, like, death and dismemberment that they ended up sh shutting down. It's a true story. Uh, Action Park's philosophy was they would take whatever was a good idea of a ride, throw away all restrictions, and turn it up as, as hard and as fast as possible. So whatever was a normal thing, a normal slide, a normal activity, Action Park would remove all limitations to make it as dangerous as possible, and that included their wave pool. Most action parks and water parks have a, a nice wave pool, you kind of float around. Oh, this is, it floats you from side to side. Action park had a tidal wave pool. <laughs> now, a tidal wave is a wave that's been created by a hurricane or an earthquake. Here I am swimming, not the greatest swimmer in the world. You know, I'm a side-to-side -side swimmer, right? Um, and I hear this alarm going off, and everybody starts cheering and clapping. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. There must be something, somebody's birthday or something that somebody's celebrating. And here I am in the middle of the wave pool swimming, and at first I feel a little wave behind my back. I'm like, all right, you know, I can get along with this. Uh, Fifteen seconds later, I was in the fight for my life. I was swimming as hard as I could. Uh, water was coming into my mouth, and I knew, I don't know if you ever had a moment like this in life, where the, you have 100% clarity that you have to do something different than what you're doing. I knew it. I was like, yo, I have to do something very different than what I'm doing, or else, I, honestly, I'm, I'm going to drown. I saw a couple about 10 or 15 yards ahead of me, and I swam Michael Phelps style, <laughs> double breath stroke to get to them, and I grabbed this dude's hairy ankles, and I was just spitting water on his legs and gasping for air. And it was a moment where I knew I had to do something different or else I wasn't going to make it. Now, a lot of times we'll have moments, even in your spiritual journey, where you realize that the way that you had been swimming before just ain't going to cut it. One of the reasons we've done this series of, called Transformed, where we talked about some pretty difficult topics, uh, one of the reasons was we wanted us to be able to feel uh, the tidal wave of all that's required of us uh, to give us a moment of clarity, to bring us to a point uh, where we come to an awareness of where God actually wants to lead us. Now, some of you guys know what it feels like to be swimming along in life at a nice leisurely pace, and a situation happens or a circumstance happens, or you'll, you'll hear something that challenges you in a way, and you know that the way that you had been swimming, this ain't going to cut it any longer. As a matter of fact, all throughout the journey of faith, uh, anybody who places their faith in Christ, it's not like going to college and you sign up for a class and you get the syllabus and you do the assignments and you graduate and get your grade. Uh, the journey of faith is a, a series of moment by moments where we're kind of put in situations where we're a little bit over our heads. And we come to these moments of awareness that we cannot continue to do life in the same way that we had been doing it. 
There's a, a great story that's repeated in all four Gospels when Jesus feeds the 5,000, and it's a, a story of Jesus' disciples feeling pretty confident about themselves. Um, they had just come back from doing ministry, and they were healing people, and they were so excited about, uh, about Jesus and all the things that were happening, and then they hit a patch where they see this large group of people, five pieces of bread, two pieces of fish. Jesus looks at the disciples and says, hey, feed these 5,000. In that moment, the disciples had this moment of awareness. Jesus, there's a huge gap between what you're asking me to do and what I can actually do. There's this awareness that there's a lot more required of me than I can actually do on my own. Now, for some of you guys, uh, this first moment of clarity of awareness was when you actually placed your faith in Jesus, when you said, I can, cannot continue to do life on my own. I can't do it on my own pace, in my own way. I need Jesus to be a savior for me, not just uh, to be a Lord where I can obey his rules, but I need Jesus to save me. And if you follow Jesus all throughout your life, he will put you in circumstances where moment after moment, you'll feel like you're in a tidal wave pool and you're in over your head. Now, some of the responses that we've gotten uh, in this Transform series have been people feeling like uh, they're almost uh, capable of drowning because of all of the things that have been uh, we discussed and, and talked about, and some of it was pretty emotionally heavy, uh, but some of it was just stuff that we just uh, feel is required of us and we're just not good at. Uh, the first message was on solitude, and we thought about uh, what it takes to be transformed by God, and it takes disciplined, consistent um, time away from everything else, away from every distraction, and time spent with God. And some of the pushback I've gotten from community groups and, and different people are like, J.O., I hear you talking about the solitude, the CBR, but yo, son, I ain't got it, man. This joint, like, I, I've tried to read the Bible, I've tried to pray, I've tried to do these things, and all I end up doing is feeling guilty for not doing another thing that you told me I should be doing in order to, to be transformed. And you hit this moment of awareness, this moment of clarity, that there's something uh, that's required of you that you probably don't have the ability to do. What do you do in those moments uh, of awareness where you're feeling like the alarm has just gone off and now you're swimming in a tidal wave pool and what is required of you is bigger than what you can give? That you can't make it on your own. That left to yourself, you're just going to be in this endless cycle of disappointment where maybe you start out hot for a couple of days and then you peter off. Full disclosure, two days after I preached a message about solitude, I did not spend time in solitude. One of the other messages was about the power of our past, and we looked at the narratives that we have in our head and the conception and the ideas that we have about God, many of which are against what has been revealed in Scripture, that these are powerful, powerful narratives that no matter how many times we raise our hands and sing a song, no matter how many books you read, these are powerful narratives in your head that will always be an obstacle or a barrier to you growing to become more like Jesus Christ. I've mentioned this a number of times, but um, one of the things I struggle with to this day is the fear that when things are going really good, God is going to just yank the carpet from under my feet. I've told the story a hundred times. Um, my late wife passed away from cancer, um, and there was a point where I was just really content with the fact that she was going to pass away, and that's okay. And I was, I was bracing myself for impact, and then the unthinkable happened. She had a miraculous, seemingly miraculous 180 turnaround. Doctors were parading in and out of the hospital, um, just celebrating how amazingly she was doing, and it was nothing but smiles all around. And I was so happy. I remember going to speak at a church and saying, hey, we're not, we're not there yet, but man, I, remember, I have a picture of me on Facebook where I'm on stage and I'm smiling. And I look at that picture and say, man, that poor sucker had no idea what was coming next. 
A couple months later, she passed away, and I remember feeling so disappointed and so abandoned. And to this day, whenever things are going really well in life, I, I get even more anxious because deep down inside, no matter what the Bible says about God, deep down inside, no matter what other people tell me about God, I still have this very real fear that God is going to set me up just to yank me down. Now, all of us have past experiences in life that there's, there are these sub-narratives in your head about who God is, and in order for you and I to experience transformation, we're going to have to do some really uncomfortable work of digging up and excavating some of the stuff that's going on in our lives and looking at that stuff in the mirror. Some of that stuff is cultural. We've, we've inherited cultural assumptions of who God is and what God should be like, not based on who God reveals himself to be, but what culture says he is. And as a result, we're disappointed. Now, later in the series, uh, we've talked about this permission to feel and what it looks like to not push away and to push aside the way that we're actually feeling about a situation and to pray through our pain and to grieve through what's going on in our lives. And when you start to look that stuff in the mirror, it starts to kind of feel really heavy. And it's very common for you to feel like, man, this stuff is just overwhelming you. But in those moments, you hit these places of awareness that the way that you had been living, the, the, pa the pace that you had been swimming at is no longer suitable for you to continue at, and that there needs to be something that changes. Now, our goal in this series is to do two things. Our goal has been two things. Uh, the one is an awareness of where we need to be, uh, and the second one is uh, a determination to swim after God and to go after God in a pace that we've never gone before. The awareness of where, of, that there's a chasm between where we are and where God wants us to be, and then the determination to run and to swim towards God, to know that God receives us. So as we've gone through this series, um, one of the things that has hit me so hard as we've gone through um, uh, each message is just seeing the own spiritual flabbiness in my own life. Uh, Part of what we've been borrowing from is Pete Scazzaro and Jerry Scazzaro's work on emotionally healthy spirituality, and uh, they gave a list of, of symptoms of spiritual immaturity, uh, and I pared some of them down as uh, things that, uh, when I saw myself swimming, I, I saw these as waves coming against me and others in this congregation, um, and the awarenesses that have hit me throughout this series about where we actually are. Hey, the greatest danger is for us to not be in line with where we actually are. Are. And some of the awarenesses that have hit me have been that you and I are we're uncentered. Uh, we, um, to be uncentered means that we're not anchored in a sustainable spiritual practice. And as a result, we get blown away by whatever, wherever the wind takes us. That we don't have anchored spiritual practices set in place to keep us and to, to direct us, to navigate us forward. I remember years ago, one of my friends was like, hey man, you know, you know what we need to do? We need to get up at 5 in the morning for prayer time. And like he's one of those, you have those friends who can convince you to do anything, right? They end up, it's like 4 in the morning. You're like, yeah, why did I go out with this person again? Uh, but one of my friends, he has a gift of gab. He's a preacher, actually. And uh, he convinced me, like, yo, we need to wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning to pray. Jesus got up early in the morning. You know, this is something that we, you and I can do. And I was like, yes, definitely. I was feeling mad, convicted, and guilty. Uh, so first morning I got up, you know, kind of struggled out of bed. Got the one knee, said a three-minute prayer. By day three, I didn't have it in me. I would just wake up and just say, thank you, Jesus, and then turn the alarm off. <laughs> That's a prayer. That still counts as a prayer. 
But what I've struggled with my entire Christian life has been to be centered, to be anchored in a consistent spiritual rhythm. And I've seen this gap in my own life of where I want to be and where I actually am. Uh, there's a, a, a great portion of scripture in Ephesians 3 where Paul is praying for the Ephesian church. And I, and I, I hear these words as if he's praying for me and for you. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know that this love surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Strength rooted and established, filled with, to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, most times when I see my own life, this is, I'm a far cry away from that, and I see this gap, and I'm coming to these awarenesses where I'm saying there's a gap between where I want to be and where I actually am. Another one that's a big one um, that I've uh, just realized about myself and certainly others in the congregation is that a lot of times we're living off of other people's spirituality. Now, I love a good song. I love a good sermon. I love a good podcast. I love a good book. I love all of these things. And God has given us teachers and authors and leaders and speakers to contribute to us. And there's so much in our life that God does through other people. But God never intended for, you, for the entirety of your spiritual life to be derived living off of someone else's spirituality. Uh, there's a great time uh, in, in Scripture in Exodus 20 where uh, the people of God are there with Moses, and Moses is like, yo, God is speaking to us in the mountain. Come on, let's go. And they say, no, Moses, you go for us and tell us what God is saying. And from that point, there have been these priests, these intermediaries between people and God. But God never intended for us to have this. There's actually a scripture in 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul uh, chastises and corrects the Corinthian church. He says, listen, as long as you guys have been around, you should not be still drinking milk. You need to be eating meat now. If you're a vegan and you watch What the Health and you don't eat meat or drink milk, then it's almond milk for you. <laughs> but basically, milk, this was before bottles, this was before any of that stuff. Milk meant that the entirety of your sustenance and your nourishment depended on being latched to another person and that they were not able to sit down and eat food for themselves. Now, if you're new to church, you're new to Christianity, you're new to the faith, it is 1,000% appropriate for you to be wholly dependent on someone else for your growth. It would be really weird if you saw a mother uh, you know, with, a, with a two-week-old child and just saying, hey, you need to be doing your own thing. Go get a bagel and you know, mind your own business. There's certainly periods in our life where we need to be latched to someone else for our survival and our health. But man, you can't be 16 doing that. You can't be around over and over and over again. And so many times we are latched to other people for our spiritual vitality. That if it's not for a message or a song or a book or a podcast or a tweet or whatever that came right on the nick of time, then you and I would be uh, just gone, on our, gone without any real way to develop our faith. A description in 1 Peter where Peter talks about who you and I are and what God intended for me and you, uh, that it was never to live off of someone else's spirituality. Uh, he says, uh, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You know what this means? Every person who has placed their faith in Christ, Peter is saying, you are a royal priesthood. You know what a priest had? Access to God. 
Essentially, what Peter is saying is you don't need another priest. You don't need an intermediary. You don't need anyone else. You need, uh, Jesus has made a way for the chasm between you and God to be completely closed. And God gives us free access to his presence. And what a tragedy would it be to have access to God's presence and to send someone there on our behalf. One of my pet peeves is when I have a good relationship with someone and they send someone else to get something from me. Like, yo, if he wants that, tell him to come to me and come get it. Now, I think in all of the invitations that God gives us, um, I think the heart of God uh, sees us and we're sending other people and we're living off of other people's spirituality and the heart of God is for God and for you and God to be able to commune. The last one, uh, two of the last ones that were just uh, awarenesses for me uh, is people just feeling stuck in your spiritual journey with Christ. Um, and this one applies to the Christians in the room. Um, I don't know if you ever noticed that you know way more than you're actually doing. We don't need more education. We're not living up. We're educated way past the level of our obedience to God. I know way more about God and what I'm supposed to be doing than what I'm actually doing. There's this huge chasm, and I kind of feel stuck at times, and it's not more knowledge that I need. I don't need another pep talk. Um, I need something else. Uh, I'm aware that I'm swimming against a stream that I'm not strong enough to, to get to. Uh, and the last one is you just don't know where to go. You don't know where to go, and this is particularly true for people who are newer, uh, and this is totally appropriate if you're new and, and you came here looking for direction. Um, this is not to beat you up, uh, but just to not know where you're going in this entire process. Now, here's the absolutely great news about all of this. If any of these resonated with you, uh, then here's the good news. Uh, I, I read a quote from a woman named Marva Dawn that she said it better than I would, uh, so I'll, I'll just read her quote. She says, we will always still be helpless sinners caught in our endless inability to be what we should be or to make ourselves better. And God will still always be merciful, compassionate, and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and ready to forgive us as we come to him. You know what one of the primary ways that Jesus talked about you and me was, uh, how Jesus would describe uh, followers of his, is sheep. Sheep were notoriously stupid and defenseless animals. Um, there's time and time in Scripture where Jesus would tell a story about a sheep falling into a ditch. It's not just that they were uh, um, susceptible to being eaten by wolves. They were susceptible to just falling in a ditch and dying. Like they would just be walking and then just fall and then be on their backs, air, air walking until they died. When Scripture calls us sheep, it's not a, it's not a compliment. It's saying that you and I, have these limitations, severe limitations, that we don't know the way forward. We should, and Jesus does not expect you to know the way forward. We are um, on our own defenseless, and we don't have anything in ourselves to, to bridge the gap from where we are and where we want to be. Now, what do we do with the awareness that there's a gap in between where you are and where you want to be? You have two choices, really. Um, you can run away or you can run toward God. Oftentimes, uh, I'll, in these moments, think about, like, what is the perfect scripture that, def that defines the heart of God in, in a better way than I could ever think of on my own? And I want to turn to a portion of scripture that is one of the most famous ones in the entire Bible. If you've been to church a couple times, you've probably heard it. Uh, it's a story of Luke 15 called The Prodigal Son. And it's moments like this where we see what happens when God gives us awareness, what is all the great possibility for us, ahead of us. It's a really familiar portion of Scripture. Uh, when Jesus really wanted to get people's attention, when Jesus really wanted to make a, a truth really plain to people, he would tell them a story. 
Uh, stories have a way of drawing you in and putting you in the center stage of that character's life, and you can see yourself in more tangible ways than you could if it was just a, a lecture. And Jesus was a master storyteller, and he starts the story out by saying, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So here's what's going on. Uh, the younger child goes to his father and says, Dad, uh, it's my time to shine. Um, and he asks for his share of the inheritance, hops on the A train down to 34th, gets on a, a one-way train, Amtrak, to Miami, and he's about to turn it all the way out in Miami and have a good time. Gets down there, spends all of his money pretty recklessly, and then a famine hits. Side note, one of the most difficult things for us to understand as modern Americans is what a famine feels like. Uh, none of us have that cultural connotation of what it would be like to be in a land where nobody has anything. We have so many choices at our disposal um, in almost every single way. We walk past so many restaurants. You can get almost anything you want in the city at the drop of a hat. Uh, but to be in a place where nobody has anything, there's no food, there's no clean water, there's no access to anything, and people are struggling just to survive. Added on top of that, he had made some terrible decisions to spend all of his money in terrible ways. So where this leads him is dead smack in the middle of a tidal wave pool with nowhere to go. Scripture uh, continues. Um, uh, we see him stuck in a pretty terrible decision because of his own decisions and his sin that he had committed. And the famine represents the things that happened to him that were outside of his control. Now, these are the two reasons that you will find yourself stuck in the middle, in a, in, a, in a helpless situation. One, the poor decisions that we make and the sin that we commit. And two, the, the stuff that has happened to you in life that you really can't control. Uh, the things that happened to you when you were younger or whatever the case is, your limitations, things that you don't control. And what it leads us is, where it leaves us, is this place of uh, knowing where we should be or where we want to be and where we actually are. And this inability to actually get and to bridge that gap. So he tries to make it right. Story continues. It says, so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to feed his stomach, fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now for a Jew, this was a pretty shameful territory to be in. Jews would have been ceremonially unclean if they even touched pigs, let alone ate what pigs ate. It's like going to Applebee's, like it was, it was just terrible, the worst food that you can absolutely imagine. Hey, have you ever been in a situation where you felt like no matter what you did, every single door was closing right in front of you? And no matter how hard you tried to get better, to move forward, uh, like you might have been really serious, like this year I'm going to do the Bible reading plan and you were really serious, or I'm going to get out that relationship, or I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and man, you just can't do it feels like every single door that you're trying to open is slammed shut right in front of you. This is where he is, just completely unable, aware of where he needs to be, but completely unable. It says in verse 17, uh, the miracle, which I pray has been happening in this series and will continue to happen for you in your life as you journey forward. It says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. 
Now, despite all of the things he had done and all the things that happened to him that he had no control over, he was finally at a point of hunger where he finally came to his senses. He came to a point of awareness that what he didn't have, his father actually did have. Now, we've talked about the different things that we need in our lives that can transform us, but there is one that we haven't touched as profoundly, uh, one that we haven't spent as much time talking about that is the only thing that can truly and deliberately and permanently transform us, and that is being transformed by grace. He knew he didn't have anything. He knew he couldn't do anything on his own, but he knew he had a father that did have stuff. His father presumably was a wealthier man and had made better decisions and had enough abundance that not just his family was eating well, but even his hired servants were eating well. And his son makes up in his mind, as we see in verse 20, or in verse 18, he says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. The prodigal child has this response to his awareness, I'm going to go back home to my father. Now, there's so many things that are barriers and limitations that keep us from going home, uh, going back to God. And two of the biggest ones are guilt and fear. Guilt and, and fear. Guilt says, as we see in this, this story, uh, guilt is a big one. Guilt changes us from what we have done to who we are. So you see in the story in verse 18, I'm going to go back to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and as a result of my sin, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That what I have done has now disqualified me from, your, uh, from you being a, a, a father to me. That my actions have disqualified me. Now, I think if we're being honest, uh, one of the biggest barriers and obstacles to your growth, to your spiritual development, is this thing called guilt. I don't know if you've ever done anything that made you feel absolutely dirty. Something that made you feel absolutely ashamed. Something that you promised yourself and others you would never do, and you found yourself doing it again and again and again. A relationship you said you knew was well past over, and you got back into it anyway. A time when you failed in an area that you promised yourself and others that you would never fail in ever again. When we're in those moments, you know what happens? Feel guilt. God, I'm no longer worthy to be called your child, so I'm not even going to go near you. I've spoken to so many people who are back to church, and this might be you. Uh, you haven't been in church in 5, 10, 20 years. And oftentimes, what I hear is, man, once I can get my life right, like once I can, uh, you know, dot a couple more I's and cross a couple more T's, once I can get on this performance improvement plan, then maybe God will accept me. And this is what the prodigal son is saying. Man, once, let me just, you know, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Let me work for you a little bit. And if it works out, then maybe one day you'll let me inch back into the house. Man, it's guilt that keeps us away from God. When we hit this awareness of the lack that we have, the, the chasm between where we are and where we should be, what keeps us away from swimming away from God, swimming towards God, is guilt. The other big one is fear. I can imagine that the son was rehearsing in his head all of the ways that he's messed up and how he was going to explain it to his dad when he got home. Hey, dad, I know I messed up, but listen, part of the reason I messed up was because of this, this, and this. And uh, I can imagine his voice trembling as he was even thinking about going back to his dad. I remember being a kid um, growing up and, you know, being in class and talking a lot. And this might surprise you, but I talk a lot. Um, and I did, certainly, in class. And my teachers, you know, they were very gracious towards me. But eventually, after three strikes, they would just say, 
I'm calling your father. And no matter how much I said, no, 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 no. Like, nope, too late, too late. I've given you chances. And in those moments, going home, knowing that the teacher just called my father, I would like just get off the bus five miles out. Like, I'll, I'll just walk. I just want to take this, the, the long way home. Because uh, growing up in our house, we didn't really do timeouts. We did beatouts. Like, you, <laughs> we beat it out of you. And, and no. Don't call ACS or anything. But it was legit fear about going home, knowing that there was punishment awaiting. Now, in parenting, we certainly need to steer our kids in a, in a good direction. And I'm not saying we should be proud of the ways that we've missed a mark. But I am saying this. If there is guilt and there's fear in your life, when you come to this awareness, when you come to your senses that, God, I'm, there is this huge chasm between where I should be and where I actually am, guilt and fear will keep you away from God. Guilt and fear will push you in the middle of a sea, swimming by yourself, feeling like you have to earn it and make your way back by yourself. And in the process, you might drown. One of the most profound statements in, in all of Scripture comes next in verses 20 through 24. It says, so he got up and went to his father. Story continues, he says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, uh, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, ignoring him, said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I want you to look at that verse in verse 20. But while he was still a far way off, while he was still a long way off, while he was still way past where he should have been, while he was still nowhere near back to what he was supposed to be, what did the father do? Did the father wait and wait for him to get his act together? The father ran to him. Now, we've said this over and over again when we've talked about this scripture. Uh, it was an absolutely shameful thing, an absolutely shameful thing for an older man to run in that generation. But when his father saw his son, the one who had run away, the one who was reckless, the one who had missed the mark, he ran towards him. Now, one of the things we don't talk about a lot when we talk about Jesus on the cross is the shame that he endured. Jesus wasn't on the cross covered and in nice clothes. They, Jesus was beaten, bloodied, and naked. It's most of our worst nightmares to be naked in front of a crowd of people. But Jesus hung there on the cross. He experienced shame to bring me and you back to God. And if you are coming to an awareness in life, if you have come to these moments in life where what is required of you is bigger than what you can give, I don't want you to get stuck in guilt and fear thinking that God won't receive you back until you get it all better. I don't want you thinking that you can't come back home until your performance improvement plan has been perfectly executed, but to know that there is a father that just not will just tolerate you, but that runs towards you. While he was still a long way off, the good news for sinners like you and me is that God doesn't wait for us to have it all right together. God doesn't wait for us to swim to him with all of our might even. God is the one paddling the boat towards you as fast as he can. There's a scripture in Romans 8 where Paul runs on this long list of what can separate you from the love of Christ. Shall death, shall heartache, shall persecution, shall the sword, shall anything. And then he finishes with the question and he's says, in, in all confidence, 
that nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, including your inability. Yes, you and I will always be hopeless sinners, caught in our endless inability to do what we should do or to make ourselves better. And God will always still be merciful, compassionate, and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and ready to forgive us as we come to him. And if you want to experience real transformation, it's not going to come in your determination. It's going to come from the one power in life, the one force in life that knows no end, and it's something called grace. There's a, the way this story started in Luke 15 uh, was, a, was an argument that Jesus was having with some Pharisees, and the Pharisees uh, wanted to insult Jesus, and they said, Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. And the word receives there in that context is one that means eagerly invites, eagerly anticipates. It's not one of just a passive, you know, Jesus would open the door and let them in, but it's one that goes after and seeks after. And the entire story of Scripture, regardless what you think about God, the entire story of Scripture is a story of God coming to us and inviting us. And sure, there are moments in life where we, come up, we become aware of the, of the tough journey ahead, but don't for one second, not for one split second, think that there is a God in heaven that is waiting for you to have it all fixed up and patched together before he comes to you. But you can simply confess your inability to God and say, Father, I stretch my hands to you. No other help I know. And God will receive us. The prodigal child had an awareness that he needed something, but he had no idea how ready and how willing God was to meet him, full of compassion, mercy, and grace. There's a scripture in 1 John 4 and 10 that is a, it's a great memory verse for you if you're looking to memorize the scripture. Uh, it says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the type of love that God has, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. All of the sin that the prodigal son had committed, all of the things that have happened to him, the father was greater than all of those things. I said this in a message a number of years ago, and some of you guys who grew up in church and you have a, if you're an inner Pharisee like me, this statement might even bother you a little bit, but Jesus is better at saving than you are at sinning. Jesus is a much better savior than you are as a sinner. And the goal the goal for you is to not deny where you're at, to not push it away, but to simply take continued steps towards God in determination towards him, knowing that he will receive you. For some of you, you've never made that decision to place your faith in Christ, and oftentimes in the New Testament, whenever men and women would come to an awareness of their need and where God has called them to be, what they would do is they would receive Christ in a, in a, in a symbol of baptism, and they would be crucified with Christ and going down in the water and raised in new life in Christ. And baptism is a symbol of God's outworking in our lives, of us placing our faith in him that everything that we uh, need in life is fully found in Jesus. And here's the deal. A lot of you guys, uh, I know you've been back in church for a little bit, and you might not, uh, maybe for the last number of months or years, you've been coming to these awarenesses where you're realizing that, man, you really do need a Savior. Listen, if that's you, uh, man, I would love nothing more for than you to check that box on your connection card for more information about baptism, and one of the pastors will reach out to you, and we'll talk to you about what the next step of your faith could be. If you have already placed your faith in Christ, uh, I want us to do something called communion uh, together today, as we do so often, and communion is it's a celebration 
where we come around the table and we are reminded over and over again because we're so quick to forget uh, who Jesus actually is in our life. He's a good shepherd that laid down his life for the sheep. And Jesus gave up his life so that you and I could live. And as you come to him, I want you to uh, come to the table to his nail-pierced hands, knowing that God, not only, he doesn't just tolerate you, God is in pursuit of us. And Jesus calls us to do this act of communion to remind us of his great love for us, where all of our sins have been nailed to that cross, and he welcomes us to this next step of faith where we could follow him. Hey, this week, I want you to challenge yourself and where you're beating yourself up, all the self-doubt and the guilt and the fear that you have about God, and I simply want you to relax and embrace Jesus as your Savior every single morning. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, you know the ins and outs of our lives. You know when we stand and when we rise and when we sit and when we go to sleep. You know everything about us, and still you call us to yourself. So Lord, as we come to you today in baptism, I mean in, in communion, I pray that you would uh, just make it so alive in our hearts uh, what we are receiving. We're receiving your body and your blood that have been shed for us, that have made us completely good with you. God, these are the blessings that you have placed on our head. God, would you give us bigger faith to trust you wherever you're calling us forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.